Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, January 4th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's top stories. Kevin McCarthy loses three House Speaker votes. Russia faces backlash following a Ukrainian strike on Makivka. Israel's national security minister is criticized for visiting the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Two children are killed in a blast in Kashmir. Mexico's Supreme Court elects its first female president. Australia's health chief is revealed to have urged against COVID restrictions for China. Tesla announces record sales for 2022. A footballer collapses during an NFL game. A U.S. study reveals an increase in children sickened by edibles. And Japan offers a reward for families to leave Tokyo. Kevin McCarthy loses a third-round House Speaker vote. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and ABC. With a 218-vote majority needed to secure the position, Representative Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, on Tuesday lost three rounds of votes to become Speaker of the House after a small group of Republicans voted against him. Voting has been adjourned until noon local time Wednesday. McCarthy received 203 GOP votes in favor to 19 against in the first and second rounds and 202 in favor and 20 against in the third round. As the GOP only holds a slight majority in the House and every Democrat voted for Representative Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, McCarthy could only afford to receive four Republican no votes. The California representative's first round loss was historic in and of itself as the last time a candidate for speaker lost round one was in 1923. Though many predict it's likely to end in McCarthy's favor eventually, subsequent votes will continue until someone receives the 218 votes needed. Republican Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio received six votes in round one, but took the floor to encourage his colleagues to vote for McCarthy. After Jordan nominated McCarthy for the position, every single opposition Republican moved to vote for Jordan in the second round. The controversial vote follows several demands from conservatives regarding changes to House rules, including more representation on committees and a special panel to investigate the Biden administration's handling of COVID, the border, and federal authorities' probe into January 6. McCarthy has agreed to open investigations into the alleged weaponization of the federal government. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts, and here are our narrative spins, beginning with the Republican narrative from the New York Post. After coming up embarrassingly short in the midterms, the fringe hard right wing of the GOP is giving Democrats even more to celebrate. Whether he's the perfect candidate or not, Kevin McCarthy wasn't at fault for the Trump-endorsed midterm losers, and he's the only one that can realistically lead the party into the next Congress. Until these fringe detractors finally give up, the party won't be able to conduct any of the business they've been talking about for the past several months. There's a conservative narrative from Red State. Just like Mitch McConnell in the upper chamber, Kevin McCarthy may have Republican next to his name, but he's only really on Team Washington elite. A man like Jim Jordan, however, has proven to put the American people and true Republicans more specifically first. The GOP base has changed for the better and is showing its distaste for establishment players like McCarthy. 
and we have a democratic narrative from the Daily Kos. What's supposed to be a routine and celebratory procedure is quickly turned into division, animosity, and chaos, marking an ominous beginning to Republican control. Neither Jordan nor McCarthy are fit for the role of speaker, and the infighting that has followed this reality will likely pave the way to a GOP civil war, making the 2024 presidential election ripe for a blue wave. I mean, they might be overstating it with that last sentence. But. I mean, it's the democratic narrative. So. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> it is a narrative. But it's, it's a narrative. Yeah, it is a narrative. Right. And I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily count on it. It's I, I, it is interesting to see the Republican, the conservative and the democratic. Yeah. There might be a new combination that we that we've seen. And in day 314 of the fighting in Ukraine, there's Russian backlash after the Makivka strike. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Arabia, Pravda, TASS, and the official website of President Zelensky. According to multiple reports, a number of prominent Russian nationalists and military bloggers, as well as some lawmakers, have demanded punishment for commanders they accused of ignoring dangers after a Ukrainian attack in the Donetsk region on New Year's Eve killed dozens of Russian troops. In a rare disclosure on Monday, Russia's defense ministry said 63 soldiers were killed on New Year's Eve blasts that destroyed a temporary barracks and a vocational college in the city of Makivka, just nine miles or 15 kilometers east of and a twin city to the regional capital of Donetsk City. Donetsk City and Makivka have been controlled by Donetsk People's Republic, or DPR, forces since 2014. Russia said the attack was carried out with six rockets from U.S.-supplied high-mobility artillery rocket systems, or HIMARS. Russian military bloggers questioned housing large numbers of soldiers in single buildings when in the known range of HIMARS rockets. Others alleged that soldiers were housed near munitions depots. While critics also allege that real casualty figures are much higher, The general staff of Ukraine's armed forces called the Makivka attack a strike on Russian manpower and military equipment, without making a claim to casualties. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky did not refer to the attack in his nightly address. Since the incident, Russia and pro-Russia forces have launched a number of attacks within the Donetsk region overnight and on Tuesday. Overnight attacks were recorded in the cities of Kramatorsk and Drishkivka where two civilians were injured and an ice rink was reportedly destroyed. A Russian attack on a water plant in Donetsk's Karakov on Tuesday also struck a residential building, killing one civilian and injuring two others. Russia also carried out attacks in the regions of Sumy, Mykolaiv, Nipopetrovsk, and Zaporizhia, without reports of civilian casualties. Two civilians were also reported killed after their car ran over a mine in Kherson. Widespread Ukrainian attacks have also continued to be reported in the Donetsk region over the past day. DPR officials reported artillery shelling on 70 occasions, with bombardment recorded in Myronivsky, where one civilian was reportedly killed, and in Donetsk City, where two were reported injured. Shelling was also reported in Yasnuvada and Horlivka. Elsewhere, following a call with Zelensky and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, A readout of the call from Ukraine's presidential office said Zelensky raised the first tranche of a new EU macro-financial assistance program for Ukraine, worth 18 billion euros, or 19 billion U.S. dollars. According to the statement, Zelensky further thanked von der Leyen for other humanitarian aid and informed her of Ukraine's progress in seven areas recommended 
by the European Commission in the context of Ukraine's pursuit of EU candidate status. Thank you, Scott, for the update on that story. We'll start this round of narratives with a pro-establishment narrative. This comes from the Institute for the Study of War. Putin is losing the narrative war against his nationalist base after the deadly strikes in Makivka. Some reports say the vocational college housed as many as 600 newly mobilized troops and that as many as 100 were killed. And TASS brings us the pro-Russia narrative. Ukraine's strike on Makivka was carried out with U.S.-supplied HIMARS rockets and killed 63 Russian soldiers on New Year's Eve. This is another example of the deadly carnage resulting from U.S. and Western meddling. And there's a statistics-based nerd narrative from our friends at Metaculus saying there's a 46% chance that Ukraine will join the EU before 2030. An Israeli minister visits a contested holy site and sparks outrage. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, Times of Israel, The New York Times, and the United Press International. Israel's National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir visited the Al-Aqsa Mosque, whose Jewish name is Temple Mount, on Tuesday, sparking condemnation from Palestinians and other Arab communities. Ben-Gvir, surrounded by police, briefly toured the religious site in his first public act since Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu's government was sworn in five days ago. The hilltop site is considered the most sacred place in Judaism and the third holiest in Islam. Ben-Gvir tweeted a photo of himself walking past the iconic Golden Dome of the Rock with his security detail. The tweet read, The Temple Mount is open to everyone. In response to the minister's visit, an associate of Netanyahu said it doesn't threaten any past agreements and reassured that the prime minister is committed to the decades-old status quo. Meanwhile, Jordan, the site's custodian, claims it violates international law. Netanyahu's scheduled trip to the UAE next week has been postponed following Ben Gavir's visit, as the UAE, which normalized relations with Israel in 2020, condemned the move. Officials close to Netanyahu, however, say the delay is due to logistical factors and denied any correlation between the two events. The religious site has been a flashpoint of violence between Palestinian worshippers and Israeli security forces. As per past agreements, after Israel captured the site in 1967, Jews and non-Muslim tourists are permitted to visit, but they aren't supposed to pray there. All right. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a pro-Palestine spin from Middle East Eye. Considering that the Second Intifada was sparked by former Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon's storming of Al-Aqsa Mosque in 2000, Ben-Gavir's recent stunt is clearly a dangerous provocation. Israeli politicians like Netanyahu and Ben-Gavir are far-right religious nationalists who believe that all of Palestine should be annexed and occupied by Israel. Theatrics like this could seriously worsen an already violent situation. In the last year, Israeli forces have killed over 200 Palestinians, and Ben-Gvir's visit signals that such violence will continue. The Times of Israel provides us with a pro-Israel spin. The controversy regarding Ben-Gvir's visit is just another example of the double standard to which Israel is held. When Jews want to visit the Temple Mount, which they consider the holiest site in their region, they're severely criticized by world governments and the media. However, when Palestinians incite violence and riots because they can't accept Jews' right to pray at their holy site, they're applauded. 
Either way, Ben Gvir's visit doesn't threaten the status quo or previous agreements. Tragedy in Kashmir is a blast kills two children. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, New Delhi TV, Kashmir Reader, Kashmir Observer, The Washington Post, and Dawn. Indian officials stated that a bomb blast killed two children and wounded five other civilians on Monday in Dongri village in the southern Rajuri district, located in Indian-administered Kashmir. This is the same area where four people died a day earlier after two gunmen opened fire at a row of houses. This comes as a blast was reported near the home of a victim of Sunday's attack, despite a massive ongoing search operation to track down those suspected of involvement in the shooting. A reward of 1 million rupees, or 12,000 American dollars, has been announced for any specific information about militants involved in the attacks, while a special team of the National Investigation Agency reached the crime scene to investigate. The six victims of the twin attacks were cremated on Tuesday at Dongri Village Cremation Ground. Police have blamed militants fighting against Indian rule for both attacks targeting the Hindi-majority Dongri Village, which is close to the highly militarized line of control that divides the disputed region between Pakistan and India. India's Kashmir has been without an elected government for over five years and has been directly controlled by New Delhi since 2019. India regularly accuses Pakistan of supporting the Kashmir fighters, an allegation Islamabad denies. And those were the facts, and here we'll start the narrative spins with Narrative A from the Kashmir Observer. The Jammu and Kashmir region was incorporated into India's Union territory four years ago on claims that stripping the state of its constitutional autonomy was the only way to tackle terrorism. However, the central government has failed to achieve this goal. As New Delhi contributes to the atmosphere of hatred, innocents will continue to be killed as militants do not discriminate between their victims. And we have Narrative B from India TV News. These latest incidents in Jammu and Kashmir expose the importance of the Indian nation remaining united and standing with its security forces who are battling Pakistani terrorists daily. An in-depth probe into the security lapses that allowed these twin terror attacks to occur must be conducted to prevent the further targeting of civilians as Pakistan-based terrorists seek to infiltrate the country. Mexico's Supreme Court elects its first female president. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Al Jazeera, Mexico News Daily, and Reuters. Mexico's Supreme Court on Monday elected Justice Norma Lucia Pina as its first female chief justice in history, a result welcomed by opposition parties as she is not thought of as an ally to President Andrés Manuel López Obrador. Justice Pina, who was appointed for a 15-year Supreme Court term in 2015, received six votes against five for Justice Alfredo Gutierrez-Ortiz Mena in the third round of voting to succeed Arturo Zaldivar as the head of Mexico's top court and the Federal Judicial Council until December 2026. As she was sworn in, Pena vowed to keep the country's highest court independent amid strained relations with the López Obrador administration. López Obrador, who has candidly challenged the Supreme Court, 
had supported Justice Yasmin Esquivel in the hope of seeing a more sympathetic chief justice, but her candidacy was overshadowed by allegations that she had plagiarized her graduation thesis in 1987. He has pressured the court to back his nationalist energy agenda, particularly his drive to give control of the energy sector to National Power Utility Commission Nacional de Electricidad and state oil firm Pemex. But Justice Pena has defended Mexico's transition to renewable energy. Though former Interior Secretary of the Lopez Obrador administration, Senator Olga Cordero welcomed the election, deeming it the time for women. Lopez Obrador stated that the judicial branch has been kidnapped. It has been eclipsed by money, by economic power. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a narrative A from Trends Wide. A constitutional law specialist, Pena's breaking of the glass ceiling in the legal profession has created an opening of women to positions of power. However, there is more to her extensive experience and exceptional abilities than her gender. The next four years of her presidency could bring a proper balance of powers, an absolute defense of the Constitution, and judicial independence against any attempt at intervention by Obrador's government. And Narrative B is written by the New York Times. Mexico has serious challenges when it comes to gender equality. Femicide, the crime of killing women, is rampant. Pena's victory may not be enough to win the battle for Mexican women living in fear and fighting for social, political, and economic justice. Only time will tell if her ascent can reform the criminal justice system that all too often lets murderers and rapists roam free. Australia's health chief urged against COVID checks for PRC flights. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, The Age, Wall Street Journal, Al Jazeera, The Guardian, and CNN. Internal documents made public on Tuesday reveal that Australia's chief medical officer, Paul Kelly, had advised the government against imposing any restrictions on travelers coming from China just a day before Canberra announced new testing requirements. Kelly argued to Health Minister Mark Butler that there was no sufficient public health rationale for new travel rules, citing Australia's high level of vaccination and prior infection, as well as the fact that the BF7 Omicron subvariant was already circulating in the country. Instead of travel restrictions, Kelly suggested that the government consider expanding wastewater testing implementing volunteer-based sampling for international arrivals, and improving follow-up of people who test positive for COVID and recently traveled overseas. On Sunday, Australia joined the growing list of countries to implement COVID testing for travelers from China, announcing that they will have to submit a negative test before departure starting this Thursday. Travelers whose flights originate from China, including Australian citizens, must use a PCR-style test or a rapid test to demonstrate they were COVID negative. Exceptions are children, airline crew, and those that can prove they have recovered from the virus in the previous 30 days. This comes as the PRC recently relaxed its restrictions and requirements for residents, changing its policy from zero COVID to living with the virus, amid reports that the nation has been facing a severe spike in infections. Those were the facts, and we'll start the spins with an establishment critical narrative coming from the Sydney Morning Herald. It's unacceptable that the Australian government has imposed new restrictions claiming they were out of an abundance of caution, even though available evidence 
and scientific information indicate that Australians have already been exposed to variants circulating in China. Rather than protecting the nation, this move will only interrupt family reunions and affect the country's economic activity. And The Guardian provides a pro-establishment narrative. The Australian government is right to adopt precautionary measures as China arrivals resume. Although an imminent public health threat is unlikely, China has long failed to provide trustworthy information, so other variants could be circulating unreported there. This is a prudent move given the extraordinary mass infection occurring in the PRC. And we've got another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. There's a 50% chance that China will first reach 250,000 confirmed COVID cases per day by May of 2023. Uh, where, where are you at with the, the COVID pandemic? Have you kind of moved on or are you still masking up? Where, where are you at here? Checked, I completely I've completely checked out. Because of analysis of figures and facts or fatigue or where, where, where do you think, why do you think that is? I would like to say it's analysis of figures because I was really paying close attention to that for a couple of years and, and yeah. it is just fatigue. Like there is nothing left in me Yeah, that cares. It's, it's terrible. It, it, <laughs> but, I feel kind of the same way. And what I worry about societally is if another, like let's say another disease rolled around right now that really required us to hunker down again. There's no appetite for that. Yeah, that that would be problematic. And so I think it's it's good that we stay, you know, vigilant about you know, keeping on top of everything and where it's going, but you know, yeah, personally, um I have a hard time. <laughs> yeah, me too. I think you and you and many other people. Tesla announces record sales for 2022. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, BBC News, The Verge, and Reuters. On Monday, Elon Musk's Tesla announced it set a new record by delivering 1.3 million cars in 2022, 40% more than in 2021, but less than needed to meet the billionaire's 50% annual growth target. The company reportedly delivered more than 405,000 vehicles in the final three months of the year, just shy of the 430,000 predicted by Wall Street analysts. The Austin, Texas-based manufacturer attempted to meet expectations by offering a rare $7,500 discount on some models, but a number of factors, including a rise in COVID cases in China, led to the shortfall. In a statement, Tesla thanked its customers as well as its employees, suppliers, and shareholders for contributing to a great year despite the COVID situation and problems in the supply chain. This comes as COVID, supply chain issues, potentially lesser demands for the vehicles, and concerns that Musk has been distracted from Tesla since his purchase of Twitter has caused Tesla's stock to dip over 65% last year, more than triple the S&P 500 dip of 19.4%. Amid Tesla's mixed sales news, Reuters has reported that Tom Zhu, the company's vice president for Greater China, was promoted to overseeing production in the U.S., as well as sales in North America and Europe, in addition to his role in China. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a Narrative A from The New York Times. Musk should consider devoting less time to Twitter and more time to helping Tesla meet its current challenges. Although its increase in sales outpaced the rest of the industry, much of the company's appeal has relied on Tesla's ability to grow at an even greater rate, like other big tech companies. 
If Musk doesn't get things under control, Tesla's stock dip could be just the start of great troubles. And there's a narrative B provided by Breitbart. There's no reason to panic. Tesla is still growing, and there's still a strong chance it'll be the most valuable company in the near future. The stock market is volatile, and it's not an accurate or sole indicator of a company's success, especially relative to the excellent work of Tesla's employees and the car maker's record performance during a strenuous year. Do you have any appetite, Melissa, of getting a Tesla? Is that something that appeals to you at all? Oh, I think it would be fun. I mean, just just to drive an all-electric car seems cool, and they are pretty sleek. They are pretty sleek. They go from zero to 60 faster than a gas car just because of the nature of not having to start a fire in the front of your of your, of your engine. <laughs> if I had the means, I would uh, get one. I've, I've had my eye on one ever since uh, BoJack Horseman switched to driving that yellow Tesla convertible. And then I also uh, got the window smashed in last weekend. So, um, what was the circumstances of the window break? Yeah, it was kind of weird though because like I got there and it had been like smashed, like there were two holes, but the rest of the glass it had been smashed, but it hadn't fallen. Right. So a vampire bit your window is what I'm is what I'm envisioning. And major news from the NFL as the Buffalo Bills' Hamlin is in critical condition after a collapse. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ESPN, the Associated Press, the New York Times, CBS, CNN, and Fox News. On Tuesday morning, Buffalo Bills defensive back DeMar Hamlin was listed in critical condition at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center after he collapsed from cardiac arrest during the team's Monday night football game against the Cincinnati Bengals. Hamlin's collapse occurred following his tackle of Cincinnati Bengals wide receiver T. Higgins, which saw Hamlin hit in the chest. He stood up for around three seconds before collapsing, with athletic trainers immediately rushing onto the field to administer treatment. According to the Bills, the second-year player's heart had stopped, but was restored on the field following treatment by medical personnel. He was then taken by ambulance to the UC Medical Center, where he was sedated and is undergoing further testing and treatment. Following Hamlin's collapse and treatment, the National Football League temporarily suspended before officially postponing the game and released a statement saying, Our thoughts are with DeMar and the Buffalo Bills. It's unclear whether it will be finished at a later date. While Hamlin was being treated on the field, players from both teams appeared distraught. Many players throughout the league, other professional sports, and fans have expressed support for Hamlin by donating more than $3 million to his Christmas toy fundraiser. Hamlin was the 212th overall pick of the 2021 NFL Draft. In his rookie season, he played 14 games, and so far this season has played in 16 games, producing 91 tackles and one and a half sacks. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that tragic story. We'll start with a pro-establishment narrative from the Washington Post. This type of situation is the reason the NFL and NFLPA developed emergency action plans for each city and stadium, including providing an ambulance and a level one trauma center at every game. The league understands serious injuries can occur during the game, and it goes to great measures to ensure players receive the best treatment available. And the establishment critical narrative comes from the Daily Beast. With incidents like this becoming commonplace in the NFL, this injury serves as another reminder that the league prioritizes monetary gain over the safety of its players. It took the league a staggering hour after CPR was first administered to Hamlin to postpone the game, and the postponement only happened after coaches, captains, and players declared they wouldn't continue. 
two Fridays ago, somebody f- had a heart attack at our gym on the bike and just fell over uh, and cut his head on and lost his, I mean, his, his heart stopped. Uh, and oh. he was like, in, he was like, you know, 47, 48. Um, no conditions, no knowledge of any kind of health issue whatsoever. He's in good shape and just fell over and died basically. And luckily <laughs> there's a, the guy I work for goes to my gym too. And he's, he was a firefighter for 20 years. So he just, you know, everyone just hopped into it and started CPR and they were able to, the ambulance was able to get his heart rate, his heart back. And, wow, uh, and he's okay because, you know, they were able to do CPR and keep it, keep the blood flowing, even though they couldn't get a heartbeat for five minutes, you know? So like, if he was left untreated, if someone hadn't been doing CPR before the medical experts got there, he would have probably died right there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If he had been like out on a jog instead yeah. of on a bike or in his car, I mean, it killed other people crashing. I just, I wonder how often that happens that people have a heart attack and then. But you know, are you familiar with macho man, Randy Savage, the rest, the wrestler? Oh That's yeah. what happened to him. He had a heart attack driving and he crashed his Ugh. car and died. And him Ugh. and his, and his, I think his wife, who was his female companion in the car, both died because oh, he had thanks. a he had a heart attack and he was driving his car and then you just smash your car. That's so the way it goes. Crazy man, you just yeah. you have no control. A U.S. study reports that there's an increase in kids sickened by marijuana edibles. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, the Associated Press, CTV, Washington Post, CNET, and the American Academy of Pediatrics. According to a study published Tuesday in the Journal of Pediatrics, the number of children younger than six accidentally ingesting cannabis edibles rose 14 percent as recreational marijuana use became legal and has grown in popularity in the U.S. over the last five years. A retrospective analysis of the National Poison Data System data reveals that more than 7,000 confirmed cases of kids eating marijuana edibles were reported between 2017 and 2021 up from about 200 in 2017 to over 3,000 in 2021. In addition, the researchers found that 22.7% of the children inadvertently consuming cannabis-laced products, such as candies, chocolate, and cookies, were hospitalized. More than half of the critical cases were young children aged 2 and 3, and there were no deaths. Furthermore, nearly 8% of children required critical care unit admissions, 15% were admitted to non-critical care units, and over a third were treated and released from the emergency room. Hospitalizations jumped during the last two years of the study, coinciding with the pandemic, the researchers noticed. Noting that 97.1% of children found the edibles at home, lead author Dr. Merritt Tweet called for greater vigilance by parents in making recreational marijuana less appealing and accessible to children. Though marijuana has yet to be legalized at the federal level, 37 U.S. states allow the medical use of marijuana, while 21 states and Washington, D.C. have begun to regulate its adult recreational use. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. Stat News brings us Narrative A. Cannabis exposure can be dangerous and life-threatening for young children, which is why urgent local, state, and federal action is required to stop unregulated sellers and copycat products from reaching American households. Kids under six years old can't read the health warnings on pot-laced edibles in the first place. Therefore, by shifting to plain packaging of marijuana products, regulators can reduce their appeal and protect children from accidental ingestion. Narrative B is written by the New York Times. 
While the issue of kids accidentally ingesting cannabis edibles does need to be addressed, a thoughtful, multi-pronged approach is needed. Federal narcotics regulations has barely changed since the 1970s. Regulators can enhance safety for children while loosening the drug classifications that have long punished law-abiding adults. This issue doesn't show that cannabis is dangerous, but that regulators must catch up to the times. And we have another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 60% chance that cannabis will be removed from Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substance Act before the year 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Now... My sister-in-law has just turned me on to something really funny, which is, uh, is stashing candy all over your house when you have young kids around, right? So you mm. just like, if there's a lot, if it's just a bad day and everyone's melting down, or I've, I've got two toddlers, so everyone's melting down, you can just kind of like peek into this closet and then there's some Swedish fish or just poke under this seat and then there's some gummy bears. Yeah, There's not weed in Now it, is the right? candy for you or is it to bribe the kids oh, with? It's for you. In an attempt to revitalize areas with shrinking demographics and reduced density in Japan's main city, Japan's government is offering 1 million yen, or $7,500 per child, to families who leave Tokyo and move to less populated regions. The current program, in which the government pays families 300,000 yen, or nearly 2300 US dollars, to make the move, has achieved growing success, with annual household relocations jumping from 71 to 290 between 2019 and 2020, and again to 1,184 in 2021. The incentives apply to people currently residing in the 23 core wards of Tokyo, and program participants must move to a host municipality outside the greater Tokyo area. People may also move to low-density, mountainous areas of Tokyo. Families' children have to be under the age of 18, or 18 if in the final year of high school, and must also live in their new municipality for at least five years. Moving out before five years will result in the recipients returning their payments. Other requirements include employment at a small or mid-sized company in the area of relocation, continuing existing work remotely, or starting a new business in the place of residence. A couple with two children that starts a business could receive up to 5 million yen, or $38,000. Japan is experiencing birth rates of 1.3 children, far below the 2.1 children required to maintain its present population size, with the nation's population falling by 644,000 people from 2020 to 2021, and current trends projecting the total population to fall from 125 million to 88 million by 2065. The government hopes 10,000 people will have moved to rural areas by 2027. Thanks for the facts on that final story, Scott. We've got a narrative A from Bloomberg. Japan's population is in crisis as birth rates continue to stay catastrophically low and the population rapidly shrinks. Communities are being hollowed out, and even Tokyo is experiencing a population loss. As fertility issues are nation-specific and no single solution exists, Japan's government must try whatever it can to increase families and birth rates, or else the consequences will be massive. And the Japan Times brings us home with Narrative B. Japan's shrinking population, especially in rural areas, is not as big of a problem as it initially seems. While the current mindset is focused on growth at all costs, there is a positive aspect to downsizing and slowing down the pace of life. 
As the country has failed in its attempt to reverse fertility issues for decades now, rural areas in Japan are simply learning how to adapt. Scaling down can be correlated to happiness. I kind of believe in that. If you, there's so much social engineering that goes on of like trying to convince people to do things. All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to increase the population density in this neighborhood. People will move out and then they'll go to this place and that'll fix this. That'll fix that. Let's just, can you, here's some money. Get out of here. Like that's what, that's what we need. Here, yeah. here you go. Let's right. just cut out the middleman. see man. if we can attract them here by doing yeah. this. And then... Here's $10,000. Get out of here. Like, yeah. Okay. Not a bad, yeah, let's see how it goes. Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, January 4th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.